Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, securing the software supply chain and what's next for FedRAMP's federal fulfillment. It's Tuesday, March 28th, 2023. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast, where you'll hear the latest news and trends facing government leaders. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Billy Mitchell. The first ever CrowdStrike Government Summit is now just two weeks away. Learn how cybersecurity leaders at the White House, the Department of Defense, CISA, and more are leveraging different capabilities, tactics, and technologies that will protect their agency and power their efficiency. It's all happening Tuesday, April 11th at the Washington, D.C. Marriott Marquis. You can learn more and register for the event at govsummit.crowdstrike.com. One of the main goals of the Biden administration's new national cybersecurity strategy is to favor long-term investments by protecting against urgent threats now and building resilient cybersecurity posture for the future. The administration looks to defend against supply chain attacks and emphasize community-driven threat detection. Cody Cornell is co-founder and chief strategy officer at Swimlane and has worked in IT and security roles at DISA and DHS. Cody, thanks for joining me today. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Pillar one of the strategy outlines minimum cybersecurity standards for critical infrastructure. What mechanisms need to exist to ensure all the necessary stakeholders are complying with those standards? Yeah, I I think it's interesting because, you know, critical infrastructure obviously encompasses a lot of different things. Um, And not unlike uh, any other industry, they have kind of competitive business dynamics. And I think one of the things that we're, they're trying to do here, right, if I kind of read between the lines is, as an industry, there's not a lot of incentive to provide secure infrastructure because there's a cost associated with it. And if your competition is not, you know, investing in that same cost, then you probably have, you know, higher opex and it's more difficult to compete. Your services are more expensive. Um, so in in a free market economy, you know, organizations there's not a lot of incentive for security. So I think the the, the mandates or the regulatory changes that they're trying to implement here is really about leveling the playing field for a lot of these organizations. I think a lot of them know. I mean, I talked to a lot of people that work in the security departments and there's a lot of appetite to do this. They know it's good for their consumer. They know it's good for the the country. Um, But there's also the business, you know, disincentive of doing it and making those investments. So I think one of the things here that would just really benefit everyone, you know, from the consumer all the way through the organization, you know, broadly is if, if there is, you know, some set of expectations that are very equalized across these organizations that allow them to invest and not do it in a way that would put them in kind of a, a, a business disincentive. So I think, you know, leveling that playing field would, would be a, a really good thing for all of these, these industries, right? And they talk a lot about, you know, we need to update the regulatory uh, frameworks for these different sectors, and they're going to work with these sectors to do that. I think that's going to be difficult. You know, no one likes new regulation, but uh, I, I think it, it's really important for kind of that uh, sh- equal playing field uh, inside of these these sectors. Obviously, a big part of this is coordination between the federal government and industry. So I'm curious, how can the federal government better coordinate increased collaboration uh, between itself and industry to share threat detection information and reporting on cyber incidents? Yeah, I I think both, you know, private sector and public sector have pretty unique uh, perspectives, right? They have they have a little bit different view of the world. They have different information. Obviously, the government has access to you know intelligence and uh, information that the the private sector is not, and vice versa. And I think there's a lot of value in that collaboration. I think the trick is you know building kind of a mutual uh, incentive structure that actually makes people want to do that. Um, and I think that that can be difficult because sometimes it can feel you know depending on the situation, kind of a one way street where you know one organization is providing information, they're not getting kind of that. Uh, 
reciprocation that they're looking for. So I, I think like anything else, it, it's, you know, this is about people in a lot of sense. It's about building relationships and trust and understanding that there's collaboration here and, you know, making sure that there's not, you know, uh, too harsh of downsides for, you know, being vulnerable and sharing, you know, where you might have a weakness or a concern inside of your own sector or your own organization. I, I think that that it's a, it's a really tricky balance. Um, I think it's really powerful if we can get it right. Uh, but I also think that there's a, a lot of work to be done to make sure that, you know, people don't feel exposed. They feel like it's kind of mutually beneficial. And, you know, what's being shared is not just what's convenient to be shared, but what's actually most valuable. So Pillar 5 uh, is meant to forge international partnerships to pursue shared goals. Um, and, you know, the software supply chain is increasingly growing globally. Um in that facet, how can the U.S. continue to ensure that the supply chain is secure as it partners um, with international allies and um, works across that global supply chain? Yeah, I think it's interesting because this kind of rolls up into the broader national cybersecurity strategy. So, I mean, obviously, we're looking at, you know, energy resilience as a, as a country. We're looking at semi conductors and the ability to manufacture them domestically. And we're making lots of investments about kind of resiliency. But, you know, what I, what I really wanted to see in, in this cybersecurity strategy that really wasn't there was, you know, some sort of kind of moonshot on uh, I would call open source software. You know, there's, there's a lot of organizations. I mean, every piece of software that we use, the call that we're on, the phone calls that we make, the cars that we drive are all dependent on open source software. And there's not a lot of incentive for that community once they've built a product, made it work, uh, a lot of people adopt it, but there's not a lot of incentive to uh, keep maintaining it, especially over a long period of time. So I, I would love to have seen something there. You know, they talk a lot about the workforce and improving workforce, but how do they really make a big dent in a lot of these uh, software libraries that are open source, that everybody leverages, that are kind of introducing uh, vulnerability and risk into the entire supply chain from an adoption perspective? And I think, you know, no individual business or organization has the resources. And I, I feel like this is an interesting place where the government could really you know, make an outsized impact on the broad uh, security of both private sector and public sectors. So, you know, that was something I hope to see. They do talk about making investments for the future, and maybe that's something they have in mind. But it, to call that out explicitly, I think, you know, would really kind of uh, show that they're, they're serious about both how they're going to hold uh, software developers you know, accountable, but also how they're going to help them, you know, achieve that goal. Because again, that, that incentive to do security is, you know, we're, we're living in a first to market, you know, world, and there, it's not really a security first world. And I think that those type of things will really help organizations get to market, but get to market securely. So Cody, as we close out, um, you mentioned, you know, that the open source element wasn't really there in the strategy, but is there anything else in particular that you feel the strategy is missing, or maybe even something that's there that isn't as uh, baked out as you would have hoped that needs to be more explicit or clear or just have more teeth so that uh, the industry actually takes action on it? Yeah, I mean, I think the workforce development thing is really interesting because, I mean, we've been kind of beating this drum as a sector for, you know, probably 15 years now. There's not enough people in it. We need to get people trained. I mean, if you look at the cybersecurity industry from a profession perspective, it's probably one of the most highly compensated uh, sectors in the world. So there's a lot of incentive to be here, but we're still struggling to get people in. So I think the idea that we're going to all of a sudden there's just this huge you know group of you know new college grads or people that want to transition from a career perspective into security um that's going to really change the dynamic of the the vacancies that we have in cybersecurity is 
it feels like we need to take a multi-pronged approach as opposed to we're just going to get more people in. We should be doing that. It's definitely valuable, but we should be looking at other mechanisms that reduce the, the need for people uh, that really make the work more efficient. We can get more you know, value out of the people that are already in industry, but they do make up some really good call out. There, there is a diversity problem inside of cybersecurity. We, we need different people from you know all sorts of you know different walks of life to be a part of this, not just kind of this, this small uh, kind of tight-knit group of people that's historically been. So uh, the tight-knitness is good. Uh, the lack of diversity is probably bad. So, Well, Cody, uh, great insights. Really appreciate your time and so nice to meet you. Yeah, appreciate it. And thanks for having me on. You can learn more about supply chain security and the new national cybersecurity strategy at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Back in January, as part of the 2023 NDAA, President Biden signed into law the FedRAMP Authorization Act, codifying the program as the federal government's security assessment and authorization approach for working with cloud providers more than a decade after FedRAMP was first created. Matt Goodrich, known to many as Mr. FedRAMP during his time in government, has played a pivotal role in establishing and leading the program and scaling it as an essential part of the government's journey to the cloud. Now in the private sector, Goodrich is head of transformation at Shellman, a role he started in just last week. Matt, good to see you. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Billy. It's good to be chatting again. So before we get into the evolution of FedRAMP, let's uh, start with that new role. Tell us about that latest career move and what you'll be doing. Yeah, so I mean, I have worked with Shellman since back in my FedRAMP days, and it's just a great company. And I think one thing that we're seeing a lot in, in this space is, you know, there's Seems like every day there's a new strategy for cybersecurity or new things that people need to be doing or new mandates from the administration or just other things across the private sector that people are trying to make sure they're keeping things secure. And I think one thing about this role that's exciting for me is really looking at how a company that does these assessments and validates security for the government as well as private sector at large and just general use of platforms, I think looking at how we can make those assessments much easier for companies. So I, we're the ones, you know, validating that companies are keeping data secure. But when there's 15 different compliance regimes or different requirements people are having to go in, how do we make sure that that's an easier way for companies to be able to comply with? So one thing I'm looking at is really trying to sort of bolster or look at sort of consolidated assessments. So how can you do one assessment, but meet four or five different compliances at a time? You know, they all have, I think when you look at these sort of compliance regimes or assessments, they're all trying to prove roughly the same thing. Are we keeping data secure and are you keeping bad and ad bad adversaries outside of that? And so if they all have that kind of golden rule of that sort of thought of security, how can we make sure that those teams that are validating that and doing that, can we reduce their scope of work and proving that um, and making their life easier while keeping that kind of security view um, consistent across the ways that different people want to see it? Yeah, and I, I think we've seen a lot of that movement in government around easing the burden on some of these providers to do work with the federal government. It sounds like your new role is is going to be doing a lot with that. Is that is that uh, kind of accurate? And, and you know, can you explain how um, you're thinking about the evolution of cloud security from where it was maybe 10 years ago to where it is today and what you'll be doing in this new role to support that? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing I'm excited about is I think, you know, FedRAMP, maybe this is a little ego driven, but I think FedRAMP is one of the most rigorous compliance regimes out there. I credit a lot of that to NIST and everything, but the way that we are able to sort of implement that and have consistency and how vendors have to prove their security. 
And I think seeing how that can extend into other regimes, other areas and other verticals within commercial sector as well. You know, a lot, almost all of the vendors in FedRAMP are not government specific. So how can what the government has done go into those other regimes and make sure that that the sort of strictness with which FedRAMP has required of vendors, how can that go into other sectors and make what vendors are doing to meet, to support the government and bring that kind of really high level of security actually goes into those other sectors as well. So I think the whole kind of view of what the government's doing around that, particularly, you know, focusing on cloud, I think with FedRAMP, because they are using external providers. Well, those external providers are providing that to commercial as well. So how are we consolidating that view and consolidating kind of that um, impetus for security writ large, not just in the federal space? So I think that view of cloud really showed the difference between on-prem and what do you manage and control and do and to allowing other people to do that for you in a way that's trusted and secure. Um, I think that really has pushed a lot of what we've seen in industry as well in the commercial space with looking at things like Cloud Security Alliance or ISO, the different ISO standards and SOC audits and things like that. So how are all of those applying not just to what we're doing, on, but how we're doing it with using other external providers as well? That's great. Um, so as mentioned, FedRAMP is now law, which I'm, I'm sure you're pretty excited about, uh, but it yeah. took a long time to get there. But tell me how, how the government was able to get that done and what it means now for the program in terms of, you know, being the, the law of the land. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it was it was funny when we started FedRAMP, you know, it was a, it was a great policy memo. And it was, you know, really, I believe so heavily in the power it could do and what it would be able to change how government can modernize and use modern technologies and also make sure it's done in a secure way, because it's I always used to make the joke around sort of the server huggers who only think something's secure if they can see it, touch it, feel it, get warm from the server on a cold day and things like that. Um, but. I think extending that sort of idea of that security externally, FedRAMP really helped push that. Um, and I think part of that was the idea that it was really consistent in how it approached every single vendor and making sure that everyone was doing everything that was required, not just what one person cared about at one place and one person cared about at another place. And so I think that the, the policy really helped push that, but then it was sort of after a while, it's like, okay, well, is this permanent? Like, could another administration come in and just get rid of this policy and say, we want to do something else? And so I think the power was after 10 years, it's shown its value. It's shown the amount of security it's enabled and the way the government has been able to leverage that those services much easier without having to do so much work to prove that it's secure to use. So I think the law really helped kind of prove that the success of the program needed to be more permanent. I was really excited for two parts in it, I think. One, to see that FedRAMP could get a little more money. I mean, we see how much money that um, CISA is getting as well as the CMMC program. And to see, you know, FedRAMP is still just like a margin of error in those kind of budgets, but seeing that there's finally an increase in their budget I also really liked the ability within the law to create that um, industry advisory group. You know, I really think that part of what's made FedRAMP successful is its ability and desire to work with industry, both the providers as well as companies like Shellman and like, how are those three PAOs actually showing what's going to work and not work? You know, I think government sometimes does a lot of like, this is what you should do without knowing exactly what that means for their commercial counterparts. It's a different space. 
And so having that collaboration and sort of enforcing that as part of the program, I think is going to also help really make sure the longevity of the program continues to show that it's going to work for government, but it's also something that industry can provide and industry can prove through their assessments. So as we close out, you know, we've in addition to that FedRAMP Authorization Act, we've seen a ton of new policy recently. Uh, the National Cybersecurity Strategy recently came out. Um, there's also been this wide push to zero trust um, levied by the, the Office of Management and Budget. And I'm curious, um, how does cloud continue to play into that larger push for the security of government information and government networks um, as sort of, uh, you know, that that uh, sandbox to make sure that things are secure? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think when we think about like when we think about how FedRAMP evolved and FedRAMP got to where it was, it really started with the cloud first strategy and then a cloud and like the cloud strategy around things like that. And I think if we think around this national cybersecurity strategy that just came out, I mean, it started with the EO um, about a year and a half ago around zero trust. And then you looked at the creation of CISA and then actually funding cybersecurity with CISA and the and CMMC. Um, and then really thinking about how the government's working internationally and cooperating internationally. But I think one thing I'm really excited about the national cyber strategy is really sort of two pieces of it. You know, there's the five pillars. We don't have time to get into all of them, but there's two pieces of it that I think are just really important. And one I think is really looking at assigning the responsibility for who's maintaining that secure cyberspace. You know, I mean, I think what you've seen with a lot of the major breaches and attacks that have happened recently is you have a bunch of different people using one provider. That provider is a person who they were trusting to do that good security. And frankly, they failed sometimes. And so when we look at the way that responsibility has like been assigned traditionally, you're looking at end users and small organizations or providers that are leveraging that. So let's look at who's actually providing the security and who's best positioned and most capable to provide that security. If you're relying on someone to do a certain element of security within your system, they're the ones that you're kind of, then it's like, if you think of a contracting way, subcontracting that out to them. They're the ones who are frankly providing that service and you're relying on them to do it. So rethinking that ability of who's responsible, is it the end user or the organization leveraging that? I don't think so. And I think it's really great that the, the, the administration is really trying to think of who's responsible for that. And then the dovetail part of that is also, how are we incentivizing those organizations to do that right type of investment to make sure those things are secure? Um, so looking at if you're responsible, how are we making sure that you, one, those providers providing those capabilities are incentivized to make sure they're doing the right things? If you're a scanning provider and you are actually making sure you're not noting all the news zero days or all the vulnerabilities, are you doing that correctly? How are we incentivizing you in a way to make sure you are? And then second, even the providers who are leveraging them, are they making the right choices with the right tool providers? And how are we incentivizing that? Because the right tool providers aren't always the lowest cost. They can cost a lot more money because they're doing the right thing. And that takes money and effort. So how are we making sure that whole kind of ecosystem is being incentivized in the right way between the responsibility of not only making sure the providers are doing what they're supposed to do, but are they incentivized to do it and are the people who are leveraging that being incentivized to choose the best people as well. So I think that's the part of the cyber strategy that I think is so important. And I think why that relates to cloud is that cloud providers are an external provider. They are using different types of tools and different types of services. How are they making sure they're making the right choices? We're making sure that the liability that they have, if there are any breaches, are assigned correctly. And if they're making those choices, are they funded or incentivized to do it in the right way versus just 
getting slapped on the wrist for using something they thought was good and should have been good. I think you're spot on. Um, Matt, great conversation as always. Thanks for your insights. And, and most importantly, good luck in the new job. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for the time today. You can learn more about FedRAMP requirements at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all podcast platforms. If you've already rated the podcast on your platform of choice, thanks. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people to find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher help put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. We'll talk to you again Thursday afternoon. Until then, I'm your host, Billy Mitchell. Thanks for listening.